Hello, this is Vlad, and welcome to the Bitcoin Takeover podcast. Today's episode features none other than John Carvalho, who is also known as the Bitcoin Airlog. And I really appreciate him for the simple reason that he's always critical and he has this type of input, which is unique and non-partisan, to call it so. He's like the lone wolf, much like people like Dan Darkpill and other commentators. He doesn't try to fit into a mold. He tries to be himself and he doesn't make much of an effort to do it. And whenever he criticizes something, it's the kind of opinion which should be taken into consideration. And that's why I thought that we should definitely have John in this podcast. And thank you for doing this, John. Hey, thank you, Vlad. Um, those are some very uh, big words to live up to, but thank you. <laughs> well, you're best known, I guess, for that notorious interview with Roger Veer. But other than that, you were involved in Bitcoin from the early days and you attended conferences in New York and you know a lot of people who got in very early. And I guess you have plenty of good stories to tell about the politics of Bitcoin. Because when we first spoke and I told you that this podcast is about politics, you said you're not really interested in politics as in politicians. But if you look at Bitcoin and the way the narrative has changed throughout the years and how different actors have attained the kind of status which gives them authority and notoriety in the space, you can say that they are our politicians and there are many politics, regardless of what we talk about, the next soft fork for a protocol improvement or how we switched from the narrative of a mean of, mean of exchange to a store of value. That's also part of politics. And I know also that you paid a lot of fees to the, or membership fees, I'm not sure what they were, to the Bitcoin Foundation. And those are also interesting stories in themselves. I have no idea what to begin with. How, how did you first get into Bitcoin? Um, well, first, okay, we covered a lot there. Um, first, I'll say, yes, I, I am generally disinterested in talking about politics as, as a greater concept, um, but I obviously can do participate in Bitcoin politics, and I am particularly interested in politics within the crypto world. Um, as far as the Bitcoin Foundation goes, I think it's maybe, depending on what people's exposure are, is to things like this, foundations, um, nonprofit organizations revolving around Bitcoin, they're not as important, in my opinion, as people think they, they are or maybe the influence they may have had. Um, I don't know if I spent a lot of fees on being a part of these organizations, but I guess looking in hindsight at what the value of Bitcoin is now compared to then, yeah, I guess it's a lot. But back then it wasn't that much. Um, but I think that, you know, uh, they are mostly ineffective and they mostly, in the past at least, have served as more of like a platform for e the egos of the early businessmen of Bitcoin. Um, I don't know that they ever had much impact on Bitcoin adoption or Bitcoin education or, you know, uh, helped Bitcoin in any significant way. I also don't think they hurt them in any significant way. But some people maybe would, would disagree. You know, we had people like, you know, Roger Ver and Gavin Andreessen and Mount Gox, uh, Mark Capellas and uh, 
Peter Vesenese, I don't know how to say his name, but he was involved with some of the uh, more shady uh, mining efforts in the early days and things like this. Um, there are a lot of these people that just mostly had a business interest that got a little bit more attention and a little bit more uh, confidence out of being able to say they're on the, the Bitcoin Foundation board. Even now, uh, Brock Pierce loves to use this as a, as a qualifier of who he is when he's getting quotes in social media and news like that he's a board member of the Bitcoin Foundation. It's really a totally unimportant tag. It doesn't but how did you get exposed or introduced to Bitcoin for the first time? What was it that got you in? Was it the idea that you liked the technology or was it some kind of ideological ideas that you might have had before? I mean, I've been a, a person of the internet for a long time. And when I heard, when I started seeing articles about how people were ordering drugs online using this online currency called Bitcoin, I, you know, definitely it piqued my attention. I started reading into it. Um, you know, once I started actually looking into what the hell this, this thing actually was, it just got more and more interesting to me the more I learned. And I just started diving deeper and deeper into the online communities that we're talking about and doing projects about Bitcoin. Okay, that, that's a general answer. But was it by yeah, yourself? Yeah, I mean, most people from my or... time... Was it by myself what? Sorry. Was it by yourself that you got in or did you have a friend who told you something about this new invention? No, it was strictly by myself. It was just, you know, reading online news and things like this and, and seeing her uh, hearing about Silk Road. And this is really the story of a lot of people that were getting involved late 2006, 2007. Um, and uh, just diving into like org. Uh, the forums, you know, Reddit, uh, a lot of people were hanging out in IRC back then more than uh, Telegram like now. Uh, there's still Bitcoiners in IRC, but I don't really go there anymore. Um, and just kind of learning more and more and more. It was not, it's, it still isn't an easy thing to fully grasp um, all the concepts of how Bitcoin works and the dynamics of how it affects things in finance and game theory and you know, you, you, anything, if you're interested in any of these fields, there's just an endless amount of stuff you can learn, especially if you start trying to apply it. Okay. I, I'm not sure if it was 2006 or 2007, as you mentioned, maybe 2009 or something. Uh, oh, sorry, sorry. I'm, I'm totally, I'm thinking that I've been in Bitcoin for six years and saying 2006. Um, no, it was 2000, uh, what, what's that, 12 and 13, right? Okay. I'm glad we got that straight because I can only imagine <laughs> yeah. how people will enrage like yeah. or probably say that you are Satoshi. About. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm not Satoshi. Although sometimes I've claimed to be. Well, aren't we all Satoshi? Yeah, I guess so. Everybody but Craig Wright, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's the meme. <laughs> so you got interested in Bitcoin, but... What was it like at the time? I reckon that you didn't have as many wallet choices. It was a lot harder if you didn't have any technical knowledge to get in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, back then, you know, uh, it was just about when Mt. Gox was, was getting into proliferation and people using that as a main way. Um, I did use it a little bit. Um, back then, you had to, like, you had to make an account with this thing called Dwala, 
and Dwala was a way to get your money into Dwala, and then Dwala, then you could move your money from Dwala into Mount Gox, or you know, and or people were using things like BitInstant from Charlie Shrem, and and going to like uh, local pharmacies or wherever it was, and, and wiring money and buying Bitcoin that way. Um, wallets, I think mostly we were just using Bitcoin Core. Um, I can't really remember if there were. Um, mobile wallets that anybody was actually used back then. I think maybe at some point uh, BitPay came around with Copay, um, but mostly we were just using the real Bitcoin wallet. Um, I, I There was also another exchange that, that was around in the U.S. from Atlanta called the Camp BX, and they, they were doing some normal, you know, you could just wire money to them, buy Bitcoin there, and they had a, a small exchange, but I don't think they exist anymore. Um, but most people are using Mt. Gox, and that was how we were getting Bitcoin, especially like the, the next year or two after. Yeah. There was Mt. Gox and BitInstant. And interestingly, both Mark Carpelles and Charlie Schrem were founding members and board members of the Bitcoin Foundation. And that was maybe the first political entity which was established in this space. Hmm. It ended up mostly being a mistake because uh, they wanted to be the people that the news would call when they needed a quote about Bitcoin because Bitcoin can't represent itself really. So the, you know, they wanted to be the, the, the authority on speaking for Bitcoin. But nobody in the Bitcoin Foundation mostly were actually very good at, at representing Bitcoin. You know, they mostly were just representing their businesses and their and their own ego interests. So it, it wasn't. They wouldn't even give proper answers to some of the questions that the media was asking. Um, close this. <clears throat> so they would on, they would often piss off you know the the Bitcoiner community online by saying the wrong thing. And I remember people giving like Bruce Fenton was you know a chair and and uh, an important person in the Bitcoin Foundation. And so. People would give him a lot of shit whenever he would say something that the community thought was stupid. Um, and then the Bitcoin Foundation kind of died for a while. Um, people were pretty disappointed because they gave the Bitcoin Foundation a lot of Bitcoin and Bitcoin price appreciated over the next few years. And so people just kind of felt a little bit burned because they wished they had just held on to their Bitcoin on one hand, but also because the foundation never really amounted to much that, that they thought was useful for them or Bitcoin. Um, then the, the foundation went away for a while and didn't really say much. And really the, the board, it had a couple good people on it. Like I know Francis Puyo was, is, or was in it and, um, a couple other guys, but yeah, and they started having like Finney Lingham be part of it and Brock Pierce and yeah, Brock Pierce has accomplished a lot as far as raising a lot of money with EOS and some other projects, but he's generally, these guys are not seen as, Bitcoiners are seen as businessmen that have successfully exploited crypto, you know? No, um, then, uh, go on. Go ahead. Oh, so then uh, at some point there was a new director that came around with Bitcoin Foundation. And I got it in my head that I would try to help make this, this, you know, Phoenix rising effort not suck like last time. So I offered to do some consulting for them and, you know, overlook this this rebranding effort they were doing. They were building a new website. I started like working with Bruce Fenton and the new director, 
and giving them feedback, rewriting some of the text and things like this, and uh, making some recommendations about what their focuses should be, so so as not to make the same mistakes as the past. Um, mostly, they just they took my advice when it came to like grammatical things or, or technical things, but didn't really take too much advice as far as conceptual things. Um, I think they wanted to try to do too much, and in the end, I think they're they're right, even at this moment, pretty ineffective and not really doing anything at all. Yeah, I also noticed that a lot of people who got into Bitcoin in 2013-14 are now board members of the foundation, which isn't yeah. bad in itself, but it's just a testament of the fact that the early Bitcoiners are not interested in the foundation anymore. No, I mean, it's not easy to organize efforts in an altruistic way or a, or a benevolent way for Bitcoin. It's very difficult. I mean, the only successful example we have is Bitcoin Core. And even that, they're not, they have a very focused goal. It's to create code. Um, they're not trying to do outreach or in, improve education or I guess in some ways they are for their own community. But in general, to try to represent Bitcoin in an organized way is nearly impossible to do while remaining unbiased, benevolent in the eyes of all stakeholders. Um, you saw this when uh, Giacomo Zucco and uh, Alina from Casa, they tried to do this, they are trying to do this newer foundation called the B Foundation. As soon as they unveiled this, all of Bitcoin Twitter was yelling at them and criticizing them for being evil before they had even done anything. Um, and I thought that was a bit jumping the gun, so I tried to defend them a little bit. But it's true that it is pretty impossible to organize a, a benevolent nonprofit effort that is seen as, as doing a good job by all Bitcoin. Yeah, but I guess in the whole process, we have learned a few important lessons about organizing and representing. On one hand, you had the Bitcoin Foundation, which was trying to be all-encompassing and do everything that was required for the project to grow, from PR to development and everything in between. Whereas the B is all about trying to finance new developers and I spoke to Giacomo Zucco about it and he told me that the idea came to him after he noticed that the best part of Ethereum on this market is the fact that they financed so many startup companies and developers work on different sides of the Ethereum roadmap. So they have lots of projects which are dispersed around the planet they have many teams of developers, and he thought that he should do something similar for Bitcoin Core. And in this regard, he organized a few people that he was close to and tried to raise funds and have this kind of initiative, which is all about development and trying to finance legitimate projects which are benevolent in this regard and want to see the project grow. But it it's never and it's not aimed to be something which represents Bitcoin. And as you said, to be the people that you call when you have some kind of news piece about Bitcoin. Yeah, well, even this is, this is common with nonprofit efforts. And 
you know, every, every Bitcoiner that really loves Bitcoin at some point gets it in their head that they want to do some kind of project to help Bitcoin uh, aside from a business, you know, whether it be a website that has a collection of good links to learn, um, trying to form some kind of community, run a Bitcoin meetup. Everybody that really loves Bitcoin always gets this in their head and makes some kind of effort to participate in some kind of way to help. Um, but when it comes, to, in, in my experience, the more organized it is and the more people are involved, the less effective it actually gets um, at becoming a benevolent curator of information or, or a resource. And you see this with <clears throat> the Bitcoin Foundation when it was reborn, they did try to focus on doing like programmer workshops. This is a common thing because it's, it's, it's something that most, of, most Bitcoiners will agree on. We need more developers. We need uh, to help developers feel comfortable with participating in contributing to core or uh, developments for technologies and such. But <clears throat> the Bitcoin Foundation, as far as I know, failed at this. Um, they, even in their second effort, uh, they, they tried to do some workshops, and I don't, I don't think it really went anywhere. Um, even Bitcoin Core itself, for a while, tried to do a... They wanted to see if they could improve their communications efforts, and I tried to help. I remember I was trying to work with um, Meltem Demirers and a couple other people, um, Brian Bishop, and I had, went to, I had met with them at um, Consensus, I think it was in 2016, and we were trying to do some efforts to get Bitcoin represented at this conference and, and see if we could head something up to have better communications for core. But I learned pretty quickly that it's kind of impossible to distill a message from core and what they agree on and what they want to see, how they would like to see themselves represented because they actually are pretty varied and, and they disagree on things and they are, they are pretty uncomfortable with having themselves represented in a way that they don't know agree with as individuals so that effort kind of didn't last very long i mean we managed to help get uh some core representatives representing bitcoin better at that conference but after a week or two later the efforts just became a waste of time because nobody there was no head there's no leader in core there was nobody to like help guide us to tell us you know what kind of messages what kind of education or what kind of things we should be doing to help communications. It, it was kind of impossible. Um, so I, I, I hope that the B can figure out doing a better job, at least with programming. Um, but both the core effort to improve communications, and it sounds like from what you say, the B, it comes from the one thing that we all could see about that what Ethereum did well was, was intrigue developers. And it got a lot of programmers interested in putting in programming time to working on creating software that was built on Ethereum. Um, Bitcoin has not been very good at that. I mean, it's been good in the, the quality sense, but in the quantity sense, no. Um, there are a lot of developers and a lot of money and a lot of investors putting money into Ethereum projects. And there's a little bit of envy on the, the Bitcoin side as to, man, what, what if we could have captured that? What if we could have had all those people that wanted to make things on Ethereum make Bitcoin. But I guess the whole beauty of Bitcoin is that you don't have an official narrative. You don't have a top leader to come to you and say, this is our vision, this is what we pursue. You have different opinions on what it is depending on the background of these people. 
you'll have anthropologists who will explain to you why it's the evolution of money. Then you'll have economists like Saifedean. How do you pronounce his name? I think it's Saifedean, but I actually don't know for sure. Saifedean. He wrote the Bitcoin standard and he associated Bitcoin with his libertarian views on economy. And in this sense, he created a good convergence to build a new narrative for what Bitcoin is. And it's not like he was the first one to do it, but he was the latest and the most efficient and influential person to accomplish this task. And also you have people who will see free speech and censorship resistance in Bitcoin. And all these stories and all these experiences all mixed together and build something greater than the vision of Ethereum, for example, which is going to say that they want to decentralize applications or whatever, or build a world computer. And that comes from the top, comes from a, a few top, a few thought leaders who established this line of thought and they create the narrative. But in Bitcoin, if you point out a few features, you're going to displease some other people who see something different in it. That's the whole charm of the protocol. Are you still there? Oh, sorry, I had my mic off. Um, yeah, I think that means that it's working. Uh, you know, in Bitcoin, the only thing you're supposed to rep be able to represent is yourself. You're supposed to be able to verify for yourself. You're supposed to be able to choose your software that you're running yourself. And um, this this echoes into all of things Bitcoin. So I think when the when the organized or more centralized efforts kind of can only get so big and only be so effective it's kind of evidence that Bitcoin is working the way it's supposed to because you, you're, it's hard to have influence over other people. And kind of, uh, I guess, what consensus means is that only thing that everybody agrees on, the lowest common denominator in the end, is, is the only thing that's going to pass through. Um, so when you have individualized uh, incentives, individualized uh, motivations, these things become more difficult to proliferate and, and organize because if most Bitcoiners don't want it, it's just not going to happen. Um, whereas, like you said, with Ethereum, you can have more central power and influence and things like this, and it will, you know, it, it'll influence other people to follow along. You know, when, when Vitalik and a few programmers decide that they want to have Constantinople, and they just say, this is what's going to happen. And then everybody kind of just goes along with it. Um, whereas in Bitcoin, you know, we have something like Segwit2x or a controversial you know, change and it, it falls flat, it dies because it's just too controversial. There isn't enough consensus. And even Ethereum is starting to see this because despite that their, their node structure and, and other aspects are fairly centralized, development, et cetera, um, it, they have achieved a little bit more decentralization over time. And now you're starting to see things like how there are some people that, that upgraded to the Constantinople fork that was, that was uh, backtracked, but they stayed on. And so now there's a fork of that network already uh, unintentionally. Um, so yeah, uh, it, decentralization is is very difficult to overcome. Sure, and in the same line of thought, there shouldn't be 
everything that we can imagine in the digital realm put on the blockchain. We shouldn't just think of these kind of ridiculous implementations, which are slow and inefficient and do not justify their presence there. I guess most things should not be on a blockchain. It's just, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, in the end, a blockchain is just a, a highly redundant, highly inefficient database. And you shouldn't just be blockchaining things because it's cool. You should be blockchaining them because you're trying to achieve censorship resistance. Um, there, there's not really any special efficiency or reason to be storing things in such a redundant, inefficient database. Um, if you're going to be running a centralized project, you're much better off using a more efficient database setup. So you have been in Bitcoin for six to seven years. And was there a made? What was that? I said about six, yes. About six. And was there a moment when you felt like it's all crashing down and crumbling? I mean, if you want to talk about the Bitcoin value, yeah, sure, man. It hurts when you when you go from twenty k to three k. It hurts when you go from you know twelve hundred dollars or whatever it was to under two hundred dollars. I've seen you know a few of these these market cycles now, and every time it hurts because you never sell everything at the top and buy everything at the bottom. Only the very few are are this this good at choosing tops and bottoms, and most people are going to feel some regret. Um, and also being around this long, you know, eventually Bitcoin always hits a price. You know, I learned this at 20k. I, I made a tweet when we were at 20k or so, and I said. As of today, everybody who ever sold a Bitcoin was wrong. And all I meant by that was, you know, if everybody that sold, yeah, maybe they had to, or maybe they were speculating or trying to pick a top or a bottom, but they, uh, they were all wrong. If, they, if, if, if all I had done was hold the Bitcoin that I held when I had the most Bitcoin, I mean, fuck, man, I'd be, I'd be rich as hell. But I didn't do that. And most people don't do that. And most people can't. Um, so I think, you know, for the people that, that feel regret or, or pain for these, these fluctuations, they should take a little bit of solace in the fact that this is what happens to most people. They're not, they're not unique. Um, it's extremely difficult to have enough uh, monetary value or personal net worth to just be able to hold everything in Bitcoin and wait long enough till you can be as rich as possible. Most people just can't do that. Um, even core developers, you know, we, we saw Luke Jr. putting his hand out for donations, um, even despite the massive bull run we had. We have lives, we have expenses, we have to do things. And even though, you know, some of us were around in the early days and had tons of Bitcoins, we don't have them anymore. And most people don't have them anymore. It's a completely wrong assumption to assume that the amount of years that people have been in Bitcoin that that's uh, somehow directly correlated to how rich they are. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I remember the first time I bought any Bitcoin, I sold it on an exchange for a $10 profit or something. And I was so proud of myself. Yep. Everybody does it. Everybody. I, I had very little trust. And I guess most people get into it just because they see news about the price action and figure out this might be their chance to maximize their fiat. But mm -hmm. the few people who stay and get into the communities and learn more actually become valuable members 
and help spread the adoption in ways that we can't even comprehend. And this is useful. It's not like Bitcoin will become a global phenomenon because people realize overnight that they need sound money. That will never happen. We always need... Hopefully not never. (laughs) No, we need the help of people who are knowledgeable and can actually create useful stuff. Even if it's a few articles or translations for wallets to be used in many languages around the world. There's a lot to be yeah, developed. I, I kind of have like a, I have a kind of abstract theory about Bitcoin in that I believe that Bitcoins want to be free. Bitcoin is like information. It wants to be set free. It wants to propagate. It wants to travel around as much as it can. And that's what makes holding Bitcoin so hard. I, I can't put this in a practical or logical explanation, only to say that I've just witnessed it over and over and over in myself and everybody I've ever known in Bitcoin that Bitcoins really want to be set free and to hold them is like trying to hold like, you know, like Lord of the Rings, like trying to hold the one ring. It's it just, it, it, it has a, a toxic effect and eventually you have to let them go. And I think that this, I think a lot of people, if you really ask them, will probably give, have similar stories about how they had to let their Bitcoin go for one reason or another, whether it be because of their own ignorance and trying to think they can trade or because of expenses or life happening um, Bitcoins want to be free and everybody wants to take them from you. Um, so holding is not easy. Holding, it's a hard lesson to learn, a lesson a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to teach people. But in, in practice, it's much more difficult than, than people realize. Even when you do learn the lesson, it's even hard just to get yourself to obey the lesson. I remember there was this story about Andreas Antonopoulos who at some point didn't own any more Bitcoin because he sold it to help his ill mother or something. So I don't remember said, the details. I remember um, like the day after I did the Roger Ver interview with him flipping me off that there was, there was some kind of, you know, there was a lot of hate going around for Roger at that time. And uh, I remember uh, Roger attacking on about something saying he should have held more Bitcoin and he wouldn't have these problems. Like, and, and I don't remember what it was. Indris was obviously must have posted about needing money or, or trying to make money. And Roger was like judging him. And Roger had just finished, you know, trying to judge me and talking about uh, how much money do you have? How much does your business make? And saying all these things. So there was a lot of hate going around for Roger. And I remember I felt like the community, when Roger was attacking Andreas, they kind of, parlayed or, or, or channeled all this hate that he had just generated for himself and they into them donating a lot of money to Andreas. I think maybe he received a million dollars or so in Bitcoin when he shared this story and, and how Roger was attacking him and stuff. And, and Andreas was explaining how, hey, man, I have a life to live and I have to you know, sell my Bitcoin to be able to live it. And uh, the community all kind of channeled this into helping Andreas out. So this totally dispels the narrative or the theory that people who got into Bitcoin early on are millionaires by now. And we see on the news all the time all these teenagers who somehow bought some Bitcoin in 2010 or something to get drugs on Silk Road. And maybe they were were too stoned to remember that they were supposed to buy (laughs) drugs and they ended up holding them for seven years until 2017. And then they were rich. 
I mean, I don't want to say it totally dispels it because I'm just, this is just one anecdotal account from me. This is my impression and my impression maybe also from other people I know. But I mean, surely there are going to be counterexamples where, you know, maybe some of the older core developers are still holding hundreds or thousands of Bitcoin and set for the rest of their life way more than even whatever need to be. But I don't know. You know, I feel like I don't consider my, while I may have unique opinions on things, I think that as a, as a human, I like to think of my actions as being common actions and whatever I did with my Bitcoin or whatever I did investment wise or selling wise, that it's probably likely that a lot of people behave the same way. Um, so I, I think that maybe my story and my perspective is common, but um, I'm sure there are, there are also people that, that held, whether it be by mistake or on purpose, quite a long time have millions of dollars so how would you compare the bitcoin landscape right now with everything that was going on around the time when you got in i know the phenomenon has gotten bigger and there are many more people involved but at the same time i guess it's pretty much the same in terms of development you have this very few you have these few developers who actually work on the protocol and it wasn't, I feel like nothing much has happened except for Gavin stepping out and some other people joining the core development team. I mean, a lot has happened. Um, has that happened in, to, the, to the degree that others would say so or think so? No. I mean, Bitcoin was so small back then. And it's so much smaller even now than people, a lot of people even realize. Um, but there is kind of like this, this outer Bitcoin, this outer crypto that is still somewhat of a mystery to all but, you know, companies like Coinbase and such. I mean, Coinbase is, is claiming that they have 20, 30 million, 20, 30 million users. And in crypto Twitter, like, you're pretty much the epitome of famous if you have, I don't know, 100,000 followers. So if the best you can get is, you know, 50, 100,000 followers or so as a crypto entity, um, and, but there are 30 million people in this, that just using Coinbase alone, at, at least at its peak, like, who are those people? Where are those people? Because um, I know that in crypto Twitter, you know, things are still pretty small. Uh, Bitcoin Talk Forum is, is probably used, you know, the same amount or a little bit more, a little bit less as it was back then. Uh, Reddit, I feel like, even though I think it hit like a million users or something recently, it feels kind of dead and it kind of feels a little bit irrelevant to me these days. Maybe it's just me. Um, but in Twitter seems to be where everything's happening. Uh, Telegram also, there's uh, some good communities and more private rooms and things like this. But it, it still feels really, really, really small. Um, you know, from trying to do Bitcoin business projects as well, you get a better perspective on how many users there really are for certain use cases. And you just realize that, like, the only way you're going to reach some kind of uh, massive success, like, you know, is if you are somebody like Coinbase or a major exchange. If you're not a major exchange in capitalizing and exploiting the, the speculative aspects of Bitcoin, then your, your crypto business is significantly smaller in comparison. I think I've also noticed in time that we have these big conglomerates of 
websites which are related to Bitcoin and crypto. You have Block One, which has lots of ventures which are affiliated or financed by them. And then I I never knew until I checked out their website, but the Coin Telegraph also owns Coin Market Cap and Coin Gecko and WhatToMind.com and Bitcoin Magazine and lots of other smaller websites that are related. And the more you discover, the more you realize that this world is not as big as it seems. And mm. you might have many people who work in the field, but those who own the large amounts of Bitcoin are pretty few. Yeah. I mean, I think it's obviously there's some kind of newer layers developing on the community. Um, we just got to figure out how to integrate it better because... You know, if the, I don't think necessarily that Coinbase is lying about having 20 or 30 million. I think it's just that maybe it's because these are just like really, really superficial or lightly involved. Like it might just be a lot of people that just wanted to buy 50 bucks of Bitcoin as an investment, you know, as a gamble and just forget about it. Um, but we have to figure out getting the, all those people to actually understand what Bitcoin is, holding their own Bitcoin you know, being involved in actually understanding why it's an interesting technology and interesting money. I recall I saw this website, which was made by Jackson Palmer. It was arewedecentralizedyet.com. And sometimes I would visit it just to remind myself that there are so few, such few nodes running each protocol, even though the coins themselves had a huge market cap worth of billions or hundreds of millions of dollars. And you also had a large amount of the coins being held in top 1% wallets. And I guess in order well, to... Yeah, go ahead. In order to declare ourselves decentralized and make these bold statements about cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin in particular... We should try to achieve a greater amount of adoption and also realize that when we sell, not necessarily sell, but when we buy stuff online and they use BitPay, for example, the money only makes people like Roger Veer richer. Yeah, I mean, the, the hardcore Bitcoiners are all definitely going to be a little bit more um, political about how they choose and where they choose to spend their money and through what services. I mean, if, if I'm trying to buy something with Bitcoin, I see a BitPay invoice. I immediately close the window and go somewhere else. I will not, I will not support BitPay. Um, but sometimes, you know, it's people aren't really looking for this kind of thing. They aren't caring. They just want to pay. They want to pay with Bitcoin and they're willing to install a BitPay compatible wallet in order to comply with their protocol and things like this. Um, I don't know. It's it's hard. It's hard to get everybody on the same page, hard to get everybody educated. Um, I don't know how important it is necessarily, but decentralization is something that is, there's no way to measure it perfectly. And you only really need, honestly, you only need things to be decentralized enough for the moment. Um, I said this in a, another interview about how, um, Applications for altcoins, well, they're just fine for sending uh, value over a blockchain in a moment. You know, you only have to trust them while you're using them. And this is why Bitcoin ends up being the best store of value because you know you can trust it for 
a longer amount of time. You don't really want to store value in the, in the latest new shitcoin because it might not be around tomorrow. But if you want to transfer value and you want to transfer value that is uh, low enough liquidity where you won't have a lot of slippage on the other end, well, it works just fine, doesn't it? You know, if I want to send you $50 of Dogecoin um, and I want to send it to you today and you want to sell it today, it will work, you know? <laughs> um, but if I want to store, you know, $50,000 in Dogecoin, um, well, for how long? How much trust do I really want to put in that protocol? How long is it, how strong do I think this meme coin really is, you know? Yeah, and I guess this dispels all that narrative that Bitcoin should first and foremost be a mean of exchange, as this can be accomplished through all these altcoins like Litecoin and Dogecoin and whatnot. You have all these forks which are much more efficient at transferring money with a low fee across the world. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you might be right in calling them much more efficient. It just wouldn't be my preferred way of putting it. They're, they're certainly effective um, proportionally or, or relatively. Like I said, if you wanted to send, even if you wanted to send $50,000 in Dogecoin, you might have more trouble. You might have some slippage when you go to sell that, buy it and sell it on the other end. You know, you might have more risk. Uh, maybe that day you send 50,000 is the day Dogecoin dies. <laughs> you know, the, the bigger value and the bigger trust you put on a shitcoin, the bigger target you put on that shitcoin to be attacked. Um, so, you know, Bitcoin, first and foremost, in my opinion, it's not about it being a store of value or necessarily a, uh, a, a way of exchanging value. First and foremost, it needs to be censorship resistant. It's the whole point. You know, you, the, the only thing that Bitcoin is supposed to do is mitigate the middleman. It's supposed to take something that usually required trust and remove the requirement for that trust. And so as long as Bitcoin is doing that and staying cryptographically sound, you're always, it's always going to be the best place to store value and save money over the long term. Um, and then hopefully, uh, you know, developers will continue to provide scaling improvements and optimizations that will allow it to also be the best way to send money, send money quickly, the cheapest way to send money. Hopefully we have all that too through things like Lightning. So you're sticking to the narrative which your former president Barack Obama mentioned with the Swiss bank in our pocket? What, how is that the narrative, Swiss bank in your pocket? I mean, I think Swiss banking. in it was a good meme. It was a good little, cute little phrasing, but I don't actually even know what it means, to be honest with you. Oh, I'm not sure anyone knows what it means, and I'm not <laughs> sure people using it have actually had a Swiss bank account to figure out what that implies. But I know for a fact that Barack Obama has mentioned it in one of his yeah. speeches in which he was calling for greater regulation for Bitcoin. And I don't think. Yeah, I mean, but it's, but it's not true. It's not a Swiss bank account in your pocket. That that that, that concept doesn't even make sense. You know, the, the the reason why Swiss banks were useful or notable as as an idea at all had nothing to do with with holding money yourself. It had to do with putting it in a, a centralized party's hands that was able to provide a certain amount of geographic regulatory arbitrage, so as to make you feel like you had a, at least a temporary illusion of, of a safe haven for your money. But even that went away, didn't it? 
Oh, yes. And you can see it in The Wolf of Wall Street if you're into movies. So what's the joke? Maybe Obama was actually just trying to be more, more uh, sarcastic than people realize. Maybe he was trying to say, oh, Bitcoin is a Swiss bank account in your pocket because it's something everybody thinks is safe but really isn't. <laughs> Maybe. But I don't think it's a coincidence that the bull run started after Trump won the elections as he had by he had both chambers of Congress on his side, both of them were Republican. And usually Republicans are much less inclined to start regulating everything. They are bigger fans of free markets. And I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I won't agree with you, but I don't have any evidence to disagree with you either. Um, I just don't. It's, not, it's just not what I would pick for the bull run. I think the bull run was just a feedback loop. And the feedback loop becomes kind of exacerbated when you have traders shorting against movement. And then the, the, more, the, you know, the more the price goes up, the more those traders keep trying to call a top and keep having to get their stops run and losing money and having to rebuy Bitcoin at a higher price because all these people, most of these people shorting Bitcoin and betting against it, a lot of them actually were Bitcoiners at heart and were just trying to make more Bitcoin. So this, so from the trading standpoint, the, the, the feedback loop just kind of keeps getting harder and harder. And then the more the price goes up, the more the media pays attention, the more the media pays attention, the more people think they, they, they have FOMO and they don't want to miss out on this kind of phenomenon and bubble. And then eventually it gets to the point where you reach the top and everybody buys the most Bitcoin at the worst price on at the kind of pinnacle moment. And then things deflate and, and we, get, we come back to earth and recover and get ready for the next feedback loop. Yeah, I guess what I mentioned was just a correlation, which isn't always a causation. But it's just an observation, and I guess causation and you could be right. correlation yeah, and it might, observation it may, it may rhyme. Yeah, you're right. But know. maybe it, it just made investors feel much more confident that they would not see the kind of regulations which interfere with their plans. Mm -hmm. There maybe also is a better underlying correlation to, to what caused that. Um, for example, maybe what really happened was the wave of quantitative easing on stock buying or inflation of money printing was something that was still, you know, echoing throughout the economy. And there was just too many dollars out there, too much, you know, too much money that, that, that was able to be spent, you know, with, without discretion and just able to be invested instead of having to be spent on you know day-to-day -day needs and so people had to put their money somewhere and they certainly didn't want to hold it in cash because it was rapidly inflating so maybe just people just started speculating harder than ever and that bled out into stocks and bitcoin and everything that's why the bull run happened i don't know yeah but i i guess 2018 was the best year for the stock market as we saw apple hit the trillion dollar mark and amazon almost reach it and we we pretty much witnessed all-time highs all across the board in the stock exchange. Well, I think that people are using stocks. I think it's very dangerous. Um, and this is something I hope Bitcoin cures. Um, I think Bitcoin will cause a lot of pain when it does cure this. 
But I think people are looking for stores of value. And I think that because of the performance of the stock market and maybe some commodities as well, that people are not, they're, they're becoming much more uh, comfortable with, with putting their money into things that, that you would normally wouldn't put them into. Normally you would buy stock in the business because you think that the success of that business will have a, a very tightly correlated performance to its price, its value as a company. But, you know, people are valuating these stocks at, at uh, you know, revenues going 200, 300 years into the future. I mean, maybe Amazon and Apple and these companies will be around 200 years, but come on, that's really how you want to invest. You want to, you want to evaluate this company based off of, you know, you being dead three, three times over. It seems a little bit much. Um, <clears throat> so I think that Bitcoin will eventually prove that it is a better store of value and it will start sucking some of the, the cream out of these, uh, these assets that people are choosing to store their value in instead of in dollars. You know, I think that I, I'd like to see Bitcoin basically kill most of the speculative uh, store of value, value on uh, gold and, and some of the other metals. I'd like to see it bring the stock market valuations to be more reasonable and maybe you know people are thinking at least no further than one lifespan into the future um and how they evaluate a company but we'll see you're very educated in this field john what's your background did you do finance uh no not really i mean i i've been involved with some people in the finance i've done some trading in the past on stock market and within crypto but um, I've had some, I've been lucky to have some very, very smart friends with some very, very good experience, um, both on the programming side, on the crypto side, um, also in finance, economics, but no, I have no special education other than the education I've been seeking out on my own. That, that's impressive. Do you have a college degree in something? Nope. Uh, when I was in high school, I wanted to be a comic book artist. Um, that was what I saw for my future. And then once I actually got out of high school, um, at some point in high school, I was in a punk rock band. And uh, I decided that uh, I would start a record label. And I went to college. I went to um, University of Massachusetts. And I, uh, about one semester in, I decided uh, I didn't want to go anymore. I felt like I was paying to go to high school, honestly. I was going at the time I was going for illustration and advertising design and I just decided to withdraw, start my record label. Um, I got a job working at a newspaper doing graphic design and I basically got paid to, to learn how to uh, do my career instead of paying for it. So I spent a lot of time in the graphic design field, eventually marketing and more communications, project management specialized large format printing and all kinds of related things, Google AdWords, et cetera. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy with what I did because I feel like if I had stayed in college those four years and, and come out with some kind of media or design degree, I don't think I actually would have been any better off than getting paid to just have a job and learn it on the job instead. That's an interesting point of view. And it's fascinating how in Bitcoin you have people from different fields coming together and learning more about economics and technology and perfecting their 
argumentation skills because you're very articulate when you speak, but at the same time, you didn't attend this type of oratory classes or anything which deals with actual PR? No, I mean, well, this is partially because I've been on the internet for a long time since early days and also partially from my own family culture, which is um, we were, when you're from Massachusetts, we, you know, people call us mass holes. Um, we have a little bit higher tolerance for arguing about emotion um, and being more about who can make the better argument. So there's a little bit of debate skill learned just by being from where I'm from. <laughs> and then within my family itself, it was kind of the dynamic was, you know, if you could argue your way out of something with my parents, they would give up and they would say, well, I don't, you know, there was no do this because I told you so. It's, you know, what do you mean you told me so? Explain it to me. Why should I do this if I can do that? And eventually you could wear them down and get your way, you know? <laughs> so we, we had to become a little bit skilled at, at uh, debating and because there was an incentive. So. Yeah, all this training to be able to withstand and face Roger Veer in a debate. <laughs> yeah, well, I did, I did prepare. I'm not going to lie. I prepared a lot. I watched all of his recent videos. I learned his, you know, his, uh, oh, there was a great tweet, Adam Back, I retweeted yesterday about how he described what, what Roger's debate style was, but basically learned his, his party line and was prepared. I knew how he would answer certain things. I knew how he would try to evade and sidestep, you know, got a good feel for him and I did prepare. It was like, it was kind of, it felt like going into some kind of boxing match. I remember beforehand, like, you know, like taking deep breaths and, and, you know, meditating a little bit because I wanted to focus and make sure like I gave everybody the interview they wanted. I think it did okay. And I think people were happy with it. Um, but it was, it's not easy dealing with that guy. You know, if somebody who's willing to make a bold faced lie and be a hypocrite and still be unaffected by it, emotionally, you know, you have to, it's not, it's not easy to deal with somebody that won't play by rules. But that moment when you started saying Bcash, 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 and he got enraged, was it part of the plan or did he just annoy you so much that he wanted to hurt him? I've got that. I've, people have asked me questions like this a lot. I've actually had more than one person ask me if the whole thing was scripted, if he and I didn't plan the whole thing the way it went. No, there was no planning that I did not know I was going to do that or that he was going to flip me off. The closest thing I can tell you to there being any kind of planning was that I did feel like he was telegraphing me a bit when he warned me. When he said to me, if you say this again, I'm going to quit. What I heard in the back of my head was, John, I'm really uncomfortable with, with how I'm not able to win this interview and, and, I'm and I feel like you're going to make me want to quit soon. So if you, if you, do, if you say Bcash again, you know, it will give me a reason to end this interview, and, and, I, and I would like that. That was kind of what I heard in the back of my head. And so I was actually trying not to say it. <laughs> you know, if you go back and you watch that interview, I said Bitcoin Cash properly at least a dozen times. Um, but the third time I said it by mistake, I was honest. I said, you know, I'm just saying it out of habit. I'm just saying it because it's easy. I was not trying to troll him in any way. Um, once he flipped me off, though, it was like, okay, it was like the gloves were off. I was just like, okay, this guy is not going to respect any type of 
human interaction with me right now. He's not going to take me seriously or answer my questions. And he's certainly not respecting me in any way, so fuck him. Um, and I thought of, okay, what, what can I do to just trigger him on my way out and get a little laugh out of this? So I just did a little B-cash dance. But he was the one that ended it. He was the one that took it to the you know, disrespectful level of it being an absurd interview. I was trying to have a normal interview with him, trying to refute his arguments. And he was just busy being preoccupied with stupid nicknames, you know? It's interesting that I, I don't think he's the only one who does this in this space, but he's the most effective. He, he has his way around it and he tried it. I've seen him talk to Tone Vase during that boat trip, whatever, and also with Charlie Lee. And his tactic is to make you feel uncomfortable, to get some kind of personal attack out there so you feel like you should step back and allow him to go on with his narrative. And he constantly makes you agree with stuff. He asks you stuff like, do you agree that back in 2015, Bitcoin had a dominance of over 90%? And you're going to say yes. And then he's going to make a consequential argument about how the failure to increase the block size is what caused the dominance to decrease as if, Bitcoin is in a void and it has nothing to do with the fact that yeah. Ethereum emerged and lots of projects were launched from it and lots of speculators and big money got into token projects. Yeah, there, I, I don't know. I'm going to think this out loud, so I don't know if it will come out right. But I, I think that there are probably two ways to completely ruin any honest debate Um in a grand sense. This is either to zoom out, zoom out so far that nothing means anything. So no matter what you say, they just keep zooming out and they just, until everything you could possibly ever say is just irrelevant and including even being alive and the meaning of life. You know, they'll, they'll zoom out. There's some people that zoom out as far as they have to, to just not agree with you. And then, then you can also zoom in so close that you reduce the paradigm of your argument to being so small that you can't win because There's only a, a, an A or B or a black and white choice. And, and because he's reduced the paradigm to only this little segment of reality, he, he's trying to make himself look right within this very small segment. So anytime you're arguing with somebody like this, you have to try to bring them back to, you know, what is actually a reasonable paradigm. You know, what is a paradigm close enough to reality that we can actually work with that is actually useful for the people that are listening, um, but still a paradigm that because if you remove all the rules entirely, then it's pointless. But if you reduce them too much, it's also pointless. You know, I, I've actually read a treaty on how to argue and how to debate, which was written by Aristotle. But I don't think any paragraph of that whole book actually made it so clear as to how Maybe. you can actually make the debate irrelevant and how you can actually give the sense that you're winning I get this from experience. I'll tell you, you know, working with Roger Ver, trying to debate with him and, and how you describe him with other people, he seems like somebody that's reducing things to a paradigm that is absurd, but has so few rules that he can try to make himself look sensible. But I've also argued with people like, say, Krista Rose um, from Bitcoin Uncensored, where he will make think he will try to make you sound absurd because he'll just keep zooming further and further out. 
where basically there's just like this narcissistic paradigm of where nothing means anything anymore. And you're just like, well, how am I supposed to argue with you if we're not going to establish at least some kind of paradigm? Yeah. I guess this kind of education should be mandatory for Bitcoiners so they learn how to stay away from scams and how to not be persuaded into something. But getting scammed and becoming a scammer has been around for thousands of years. So this is not going to go away in any form. Yeah. I can give another easy rule of thumb. Just be skeptical of everything and everyone in this space. And you'll know the difference of when you're being too skeptical because sometimes you'll be so, so, so skeptical that you become kind of knee-jerk contrarian and you'll start feeling stupid because you, people will have answers that you're like, oh, shit. I'm being too skeptical. I feel a little bit stupid right now. And then you'll learn where that kind of, where that side of the line is. And then other times, most of the time, people are saying dumb shit. And so being skeptical is actually a pretty high efficiency, high win rate uh, uh, behavior because most of the time people are saying things that either people have already said before, are bad ideas, or they're just trying to scam you or scam themselves. So skeptical, skepticism has a pretty good efficiency to it. About skepticism, I was about to ask you about Blockstream and how it has become maybe the ambassador for Bitcoin. And at least throughout the last year, they had so many successful or more or less successful launches and they have developed some great tools which are open sourced and they have some of the best developers in the game. And I agree with some of that, but definitely not all of it. Okay, go on. Um, I think they do have some of the best developers in the game. I think they have released some successes and some cool things. But um, depending on how you look at them, I think there's a lot that you could either criticize or, or say could improve. Um, they aren't making money, as far as I can tell. So as a business, which they are a business, they're not a nonprofit organization, um, this is something they chose. So if they are a business and they're trying to make money, I don't think they're doing very well at it. Um, as a Bitcoiner, you don't care, right? Because all you really care about is if they're helping Bitcoin. Yeah, sure, they're helping Bitcoin. They gave us satellites, they gave us a block explorer, they gave us uh, sidechain technology, and they're helping with lightning network technology and things like this. They're contributing. Um, but I don't know. Um, I don't agree with all of the technologies that they've chosen to put their time into. I have a lot of skepticism about side chains. I have a lot of skepticism about Liquid. Um, I've actually interacted with Blockstream representatives directly about my skepticism about Liquid um, going years back. Um, and they've kind of pivoted on what Liquid was going to be from what it initially was. And even now, after official release, it still isn't really that prevalent, used and implemented and I also question how much money it's actually making them, even as implemented. So I don't know if they're doing consulting stuff on the side and making money that way or what they're doing to stay alive, but they're going to have to eventually have, you know, significant revenue to be able to continue doing projects as ambitious as they're, they're entertaining and as detached from revenue as most of them are. They're going to have to figure something out or they won't survive. Uh, maybe they held so much Bitcoin from the start that they're going to be fine 
for quite a long time, and maybe I'm wrong just because they were, they were smart enough to do that, because they did form pretty early, and they did make commitments to paying people in Bitcoin value and holding Bitcoin. I don't remember the details. They, there was a time they, get, they shared some details, but they may have a lot of Bitcoin and be okay just because of that. But as a business, I don't see where the, where the revenue is coming from or what their plan is for revenue. Um, the projects that are more commercially aligned don't seem to me to be good market fits. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, but the stuff they're doing that's just purely good for Bitcoin is great, you know? Helping with Lightning, helping make new ways to access Bitcoin with satellites and uh, providing tools, and that's all great, you know? But those are non, not profitable. Those are kind of infrastructure. So maybe their business thesis, which is actually one I kind of agree with, is that their thesis is to hold as much Bitcoin as possible and improve the infrastructure as much as possible and just hope that infrastructure improvements will facilitate enough appreciation and Bitcoin spending power that they'll exist for a long, long time. It's not, it's not a horrible thesis, not a horrible approach, but I don't, I don't know if that's intentional or their actual plan or not. To me, it's interesting that if you read anything on RBTC on Reddit, there's a lot of hatred which is directed towards Blockstream and some commentators point out that it might just be the centralizing factor which will bring Bitcoin to its demise. And it's hard I, I to mean, see how Blockstream that can happen. That influential, you know? I mean, what is Blockstream? They have some of the some of the major core developers, but they're not that big as far as how many people work there. They do have some bigger names there, but they're not that big. If Blockstream Blockstream doesn't have a lot of control over the protocol. It doesn't have a lot of influence over Bitcoiners at large. Um, yeah, they have influence, and yeah, people know who they are. But what is what? How are they? What what power are they actually wielding? Honestly, and do you really think that if Blockstream proposed something that any uh, respected uh, scientists or programmers or community members outside of Blockstream disagreed with, do you really think that it would still get into the protocol, that it would still fly? I don't think they have that power. Um, I think they're just somebody that had, they, they carry a lot of reputation and respect, but I don't think they carry a lot of power because of it. That's an interesting view. And I guess the Bitcoin Cash people usually mention that they are funded by the New York Stock Exchange, I think. They have found... Yeah, they say AXA and all these. They, they want to have this be like the Bilderberg conspiracy theory. I think that RBTC just does this because they need some kind of narrative. Look, I, I said this in my last interview with Peter. Um, everything that is not Bitcoin has to paint itself in a light in the context of Bitcoin. So this is just more uh, proof that Bitcoin is the dominant thing and it is the thing everybody wishes to unseat and, and wishes be. So RBTC, Bcash, Roger Ver, once they have chosen to not support the real Bitcoin, they have to create narratives that, that tear Bitcoin down. So they're going to create as many monsters as they can, they can dream of. And, if, and the easiest monsters to choose are the ones with the people of the best reputation. 
So you want to, they want to destroy reputation. They don't want people to feel safe with Bitcoin. So they want to make Roger, I mean, they want to make uh, Greg Maxwell look bad, Adam Back look bad, Blockstream look bad, Core look bad. They, they're going to pick every single thing that is uh, respected and, and valued within our community and they're going to try to sell you it. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's very political in this regard. Mm-hmm. When you have political regimes, they will always try to find the enemy. Even in democracies, you have political parties and they turn their opposition into monsters and they try to find lots of reasons not to like them as human beings, even though they might be professionally competent. Mm-hmm. They, they find external reasons to make them look like monsters and I, right now that's I fine think... but it doesn't work as well in this space in this space people are much more tight uh much more tightly integrated with concepts around merit and reputation and so when you try to say oh this person is bad because he deleted my thread on reddit well there are plenty of people the bitcoiners using reddit and the bitcoiners using participating in social media and bitcoin They're just not that stupid, you know? <laughs> like, they know Reddit is just a fucking forum and it completely irrelevant in the grand scheme of things to Bitcoin and the protocol and adoption. And, you know, and if Roger wants to have a freaking, you know, chip on his shoulder because the one time he tried to shill Bcash on our Bitcoin, it got deleted, well, that just makes him look worse. Yep, but in... In the grand scheme of things, I guess he only got richer. He might have lost with Bitcoin Cash or Bcash or whatever. And that might just crumble and become irrelevant in a couple of years. But he still owns, he invested in Dash, he invested in BitPay. He invested in lots of startups and ventures like blockchain.info, which turned into blockchain.com. It's not like he will ever run out of money. And he, he funded lots of legitimate projects. This is something I want to disagree with you with. I don't know for sure if I'm right, but I feel like conceptually it's easy for me to disagree with you on this because of this reason. I fundamentally believe that trying to manipulate markets is a very high friction and expensive thing to do. And when you are trying to do something um, that goes against what a market is naturally trying to do, and a market is naturally trying to be effective and efficient. Um, when you are trying to introduce friction and inefficiency into a market, you do it at your expense. And the only way you can do this outside of your own expense and, uh, um, is by exploiting the resources of others. And so, yes, Roger probably did make money on this or that of his choices, maybe on Dash, maybe on Bcash, maybe on Bitcoin.com. But every time he has that, that free float money, he is, he is just spending it, he's just burning it, trying to stop the train that is Bitcoin. But he's still just you know, a leaf on the track. He's not actually Superman standing in front of a train. He's just causing friction. And that friction will just burn away and amount to nothing over time. And so he, he only live as long as his own resources and the resources that he can exploit from other people. And the problem is the only people that will allow him to exploit them 
are people of, of lower resources, people either of lower intelligence, of lower moral uh, integrity. You know, they're all people that, that are unsustainable as resources, um, I hope. This is my theory. Maybe I'm wrong. But I think that it's, it's, it's a losing game. And the, the harder he fights this game, the bigger he, he goes in this fight, the actual higher risk and lower time he's going to be able to do it. And I really believe that he went, he went, he went really hard with Bitcoin.com. He went really hard with Bitcoin Cash. And I think things like the fork with BSV were actually manufactured to generate liquidity to create more fuel for his, his fight. Um, but I think that in the process, he may have killed Bitcoin Cash on his own. Um, I think one or two years is probably accurate, I think, uh, as far as its lifespan. But what happens when he's holding, bag holding, what he thought was $50 million or something in, in resources, and then it turns to zero overnight? What happens when people just get tired of him and his reputation even from having money or Bitcoin.com just becomes worthless. Like this can happen very, very, very quickly. Um, when he did that interview with me, he lost a lot. You know, I, I feel like I cost him a lot of money and a lot of his efforts, even just through being on a live stream with him for an hour or two. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that cost him tens of thousands or more in, in costs of putting out fires with PR people and, you know, making videos apologizing and whatever else he felt like he needed to do to, to counteract that event. Um, and I'm happy that he had to waste money counteracting that event. So I think we, we, we can't, we can't just let ourselves think, Oh, Roger's going to be around for a long time and Roger's rich and Roger invested in all these things. So we just have to accept that. No, we have to constantly make him spend as much money as possible. We have to make him double down over and over and over. So he just blows all of his fuel as big and as fast as possible because he will run out and he will fail because he's fighting the market. He's not trying to participate in it. That's an interesting point of view. And to some extent, I agree. But at the same time, it's not a factual statement in the sense that we have no idea how much he holds and what he holds. And what do you think about the fact that you find lots of people who ask him to come back to Bitcoin and it happens the same with Jihan? Um, I don't know. I mean, come back to Bitcoin, it's not anybody's choice. It's his choice. And if he wants to start promoting Bitcoin, um, getting people, making Bitcoin.com something that actually represents the real Bitcoin. I mean, honestly, dude, he's, he's going to, do the same thing he does already. He's going to say lies. He's going to try to get people to buy Bitcoin. I think he's just choosing to have people buy something other than Bitcoin because yeah, at some point he decided to pivot and, and speculate on that he could make more money by pumping smaller coins. Um, I don't think he'll come back to Bitcoin because Bitcoin's too expensive now. And he won't, he won't, he can't get the same percentage of the entire pie of Bitcoin that he, that, he, that he once had. And that's the mistake, is that every single time he bets against Bitcoin and fights Bitcoin, it becomes harder for him to have as many Bitcoins as he used to. And if he really wanted to, if he was ever going to promote Bitcoin again and come back to Bitcoin, it will only be because he has a higher percentage of it than he once had. Somehow I feel very sorry that we spent so much time talking about him. Yeah, me too. 
But at the same time, it has to deal with the idea of politics. And he is one of the biggest figures. And he's still tricking newcomers into believing that he's selling the real Bitcoin. And when you try to buy Bitcoin... But is Bitcoin, he though? Maybe he's just tricking us into believing that, you know, like, because that's a bigger win, isn't it? If he can, if he can fool his enemy into thinking that he is a formidable opponent, then maybe that allows him to be able to actually trick the newbies and think that he has power. Maybe we're giving him the power. Sure. Just by mentioning him, we are legitimizing his position. Mm -hmm. So let's move on and talk about something <laughs> else. Yeah. I, I am a little bit of a hypocrite in this sense because I do pay him some attention, but more and more over time, I try to make it more about more conceptual and more about lessons. Like even with this, this fight thing, the only reason I'm talking about Roger Ver lately is because I think maybe I'll, there's just some astronomical, probably chance, but chance that I can take this fucking domain. From him. That's the only reason. It's not because I actually think we need to still keep talking about him. It's because he still has an asset that the Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, even in real politics with politicians, this is how it works. I don't think Donald Trump would have stood a chance against his opponents, who are pretty much career politicians, if it wasn't for his consultant team and the people who taught him how to get constant attention from the media. He was everywhere. He was making these controversial statements, and he knew how to maneuver mainstream media so that he was always the candidate that they would talk about. And maybe that in the case of Roger Veer, he's tricking us to talk about him all the time so that he gets legitimized as an important figure, even though maybe that he doesn't deserve it. Yeah, and this is like Pepe politics. Pepe politics. I, I like the sound of that. Mm, so... Do you like the evolution of Bitcoin over the years? Are you proud of what you feel like you've accomplished? More so over the, you know, over time, I feel like my, my pride and my uh, appreciation for my own participation has been increasing more in the, in the later years. Um, the, the pace seems to be kind of steady. I don't think it's accelerated a lot, a lot. Um, but it has grown, you know, I mean, we have so many develop, I think probably most of the developers that say are working on lightning, I'm going to, I might be wrong. I'm sorry if I am, but I think a lot of them weren't even around in the first couple of years that I was here. And so that's pretty cool, right? I mean, we have a whole layer, extra layer of technology being worked on by a bunch of people that weren't even around back then. So something has improved. Actually, I had an interview for this podcast with Matt B on Twitter. I think his Motoshi or something. Mm -hmm. And he's a journalist for Bitcoin Magazine. Mm -hmm. And he told me that he's very happy with BitRefill. And that's the service which he uses when he wants to spend his Bitcoin. And I told him, you know, I'm, I'm actually scheduled to talk to John next week. And uh, I'm going to let him know about it. Nah, I'm glad that I remembered to do it. Oh, I'm happy to hear people using it. I mean, I've used gift cards in Bitcoin since years now, too. And then I remember um, I'm a big Dota 2 fan um, on and off. I haven't really been playing lately. But 
and Dota 2, you know, uh, buying skins and stuff like this and different uh, cosmetic thing aspects or music and icons or whatever for the game just to have it be more fun. Uh, you know, I was using, I was buying Steam credit with Bitcoin for years and uh, then Steam stopped accepting Bitcoin. My, my theory is because BitPay fucked it up, not Bitcoin. But, uh, <clears throat> and then I was like, oh shit, where am I going to buy Steam with Bitcoin now? And I, that's how I've heard of Refill. And they had only just started uh, offering gift cards in like, I think it was June last year. Um, and so I was able to get Steam through them and that, that gave me my first exposure to them because before that they were only doing like mobile, mobile top-ups, mobile recharge refill things. Um, <clears throat> and I already knew that, you know, that there was a good use case there. I think that, you know, people like money with utility and gift cards provide very specific utility. Um, so you see the most popular ones being the ones that have more utility, like Amazon and iTunes will play because buy more varied things with those gift cards. But in the end, what they do provide is stability. You know that you're going to get $20 worth of services from or products from Amazon when you have a $20 card. When you use a utility token or something like this, you don't know that, you know? You don't know what the, what the trade value will be of civic tokens or other utility tokens. So gift cards just make more sense from if you're trying to live on crypto, you're, you're going to, you know, and, and you want to be able to have, store some value in things you know you need to buy. Well, you know, fuck it. I'll buy some Google Play credit. I'll charge my Google Play account and I'll let my recurring fees for Google, random Google services just get deducted from that. Um, so I, I do think it helps people, it helps create what I eventually hope will be a circular Bitcoin economy where people aren't um, even having to get out of Bitcoin at all. Just for the record, when you said Steam, it's S-T-E-A-M, which is the service by Valve and not S-T-E-E-M, which is the currency Correct. of Steam, the social <laughs> no, network. Not Steam, it, not Steam it. Come on, nobody uses that. I used to use it. I used to like it. it it's like Reddit with a blogging function. It's like Reddit, Reddit with a spamming function? Yeah, because you can create <laughs> bots and stuff. Nah, I mean, I, I got the concept of Steam. It's just, I, what I didn't like is that everybody buy, bought some kind of illusion that this is somehow blockchain and somehow decentralized, and that was all bullshit. Um, I don't mind including monetization incentive, incentivization schemes within platforms. It's great. Gamify the shit out of that. But don't, don't exploit the concept of Bitcoin to do it and scam a bunch of people and think that they can actually invest in this stuff and then, then lock them into, like, these, these holding periods and all this crazy shit and make them think that money can be printed out of thin air. It's stupid. What do you think about Brave and all their token system? Um, I have some history with Brave. I uh, was very, very critical of Brendan Eich and their, their, they've changed their, their plan since they first started a little bit, um, but not that much. And so I kind of got into some arguments with them a few times on Twitter over time. And I actually did an interview with him that I never published um, where we had a phone call for a couple hours, actually, talking about my criticisms of their design for their system and his, his kind of 
specifications for them. It's on a hard drive somewhere in storage. I don't have it with me anymore. But uh, I think that this, that as a browser, fine. If you want to make a browser that is privacy focused and efficient and whatever, but it has absolutely nothing to do with the other side of the business model. And this is how this is how shit coiners and and ICO things trick people. Like for some reason, people either because they don't want to or because it's maybe more difficult than I realize it is, they don't want to think two or three levels deep or zoom out, you know, two or three steps. They just want to see what they want to see, and that's enough for them. But Brave being a privacy-centric or ad-blocking cool browser has nothing to do with the Brave token. It's like totally unrelated. And people somehow, for some reason, attribute the two sides of the model and they, they're not. Um, but the concept of rewarding people for their attention is total nonsense. Um, we already have websites for this. Like if you want to like get paid to look at ads, there are some really shitty websites that you can find online that people have been doing this for years and you'll get paid pennies for your time. And that will be the market rate, that same market rate that Brave will try to do it. I mean, come on. Do you want to start a tech business where what you're trying to do is compete for this like shitty ass spam market of ads where people are being paid to look at ads? No, because advertisers don't want to pay for ads like that unless they're extremely cheap and, and actually provide some kind of conversions. And people don't want to spend their time getting paid pennies. They want to make real money and do things. You know, most people have more to contribute to life than just fucking clicking on ads all day and staring at stupid pictures. Um, sure, there's some people that will do it, but this is not a business model. This is not something that they'll actually be able to make succeed. Um, what they really wants to do, in my opinion, is they want to, they want to exploit the content of the internet. They want to take the fact that most websites, they're putting their content out there for relatively free and, and without any friction to access. And so that what they want to do is they want to replace ads and they want to say, well, because we're going to exploit your content and put our own uh, monetized content on there, we're going to give you a cut. But this is not a voluntary process and it requires you to kind of opt into their system and KYC and it's just a bunch of nonsense. And I, I think that uh, that's the case for pretty much all ICO tokens. I don't really know of any ICO tokens that are truly providing more utility than if they were just a centralized database. I feel like we sidetracked too much from Bitcoin and this has sure. been going for over an hour. So I should ask you a last question. So there, there's this Alfred Hitchcock quote in which he said that movies and their length should be proportional with the human bladder. So we shouldn't go on for too long if we want to okay. keep people's attention. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, and I've spoken on some of these things before. If, if people are actually following me for any amount of time, they've heard me say some of the things we talked about before. So, yeah, I mean, go ahead. If you have an interesting question... Shoot. Now, now you're putting a lot of pressure on me <laughs> because I have no idea what you spoke about before. 
I haven't That's listened okay. to all your interviews. There's always new people anyway. I, I don't like repeating myself because I feel like I don't want the same person to hear the same thing from me. But I also don't have enough appreciation for the fact that there's always new people coming in and they're not all digging into my catalog of past interviews, you know? Okay. So what is your view on hyper-Bitcoinization and where do you think it starts from? I usually have this kind of debate where some people mention that it comes from the developed states, which are the ones which can afford larger amounts of Bitcoin. But uh, I like to think that it's actually the states which need it for censorship resistance against their governments, which are actually going to get in and buy. Um, I don't let hyper Bitcoinization is a bit of a extreme concept. Um, I don't know that we will witness it in a moment. Uh, I don't know that we'll see just one day there'll be a hyper Bitcoinization. And I also think that as a concept, look, there's a certain amount of value in the world that people will store in money and a certain amount of buying power. And that, that is a, a relatively stable amount. It doesn't just get to be where one day Bitcoin will buy you, uh, you know, one Bitcoin will buy you an entire island or some shit. What happens is that the value, the value in dollars of Bitcoin may reach a hyper amount of money, but the value of dollars in purchasing power may be worth a hyper amount less. <laughs> you know, it, so maybe when we, when we get hyper Bitcoinization, how much is a hamburger going to cost? Ten thousand dollars? You know, um, so I don't really know what it looks like, and I don't, and I hope it doesn't happen in a moment because I think the world needs to acclimate to the disruption that Bitcoin is going to cause. Um, so I would rather see it happen in pockets. I'd rather see little things like Venezuela, you know, getting really into Bitcoin, and and countries that have really bad money or really bad access to banking or or really. Uh, insufficient means of sending money overseas or too much censorship of getting money across borders. I'd rather see the small use cases happen slowly and, and, and in a way that nobody can really stop because that's how we kind of sneak in there. You know, I want it to be where one day politicians aren't trying to kill Bitcoin because they hold some. I want it to be that, you know, people are not uh, trying to kill Bitcoin or, or wish it was dead or fight against it because you know, their mom is alive because of Bitcoin, because of she, that's how she escaped her oppression. You know, like I want there to be small stories and small wins. I don't mind if it takes past my lifetime to get there. Um, yeah, I'd love to see, I'd love to witness all of the advancements of Bitcoin and be here when it happens. But I don't know when these things happen. I don't know how long it takes. And the concept of hyper-Bitcoinization, I think, requires people, it's a little bit of a... Uh, dangerous concept for people to hope for because it really appeals to a greed side. It's like saying, oh, one day I might wake up and I will be a millionaire because of hyper-Bitcoinization. And I don't think it's that, nothing is ever that simple, right? Like, yeah, maybe one day you will wake up and you'll be a millionaire and it will cost, you know, $10,000 for a hamburger. Will you be happy? I don't know. <laughs> that, that's a good point of view. And I think I've had a similar thought at one point. But you mentioned some other more interesting aspects too, like whether it will be governments buying a lot. We've heard some rumors lately like about Russia buying into Bitcoin and, and ICO tokens and shit like this. But uh, yeah, I think that 
there are going to be some governments that are going to be smart and they're going to start buying Bitcoin or even mining Bitcoin uh, probably secretly. And it probably has already started where there are some reserves in, in governments of Bitcoin, maybe other uh, altcoins. Um, but I don't know if it'll be like a, a financial cold war or just or, or what or how it will be because you don't want to you don't want to be the only country doing it because then you're the only one exposed. You kind of want everybody to be doing it secretly and all the when then one day you want to just find out oh shit like there's 20% of the Bitcoin supply is owned by 20 different countries. That's pretty cool. Um, you want every you want it to sneak in and you want everybody to be kind of stuck with Bitcoin and and you want the game the game theory to hold. You want it to be where everybody's scared to not have Bitcoin. That's an interesting concept. And I, I thought about it before as this little invention of cryptography and computer science can actually shift the dynamics of international power structures. You can see how I think in 2017, they made the case about North Korea, which was mining Bitcoin and engaging in trades to bypass their embargo. And more recently, we've seen cases in Palestine and then Venezuela. And up to this point, it's always about trying to find ways around the international financial system, which tries to maneuver and have leverage on how money circulates around the globe. And mm. I guess the more nation states declare their independence and say, we, we no longer want to be bound to the IMF and we don't want to have our policies shaped by somebody sitting in Washington or something. Yeah, I mean, this isn't something I have a, a lot of expertise in, but if I'm going to riff on it, I would say... Okay, yes, I think that, that there will be a kind of shift in world powers because of Bitcoin. Like, I don't know, like if Ukraine, I think at some point last year said they had a certain amount of Bitcoin. And if they're the only ones that do right now, maybe they'll end up having like a disproportionate amount of value compared to other countries in their own power and, and be able to kind of shift a little more power their way because of the Bitcoin they hold. But there's like other things at work, like, if Venezuela becomes, you know, the richest country in the world just because of the Bitcoin they hold, well, if they don't use that Bitcoin properly to have, like, a proportionally uh, powerful army and political influence and trade agreements and whatever else it might take to be a powerful country, if they don't do that, then that Bitcoin will just get taken from them eventually, you know? So it's a kind of thing where there's a lot of facets and layers to this, so... I don't think you just get to become one of the greatest countries or richest countries just because you made a good bet on Bitcoin. I think you have to still be actually a good country and actually an effective country in other ways. Or otherwise, you're just going to, you know, the U.S. will come in and bomb you and take your oil, you know? And then no. all of a sudden, they're taking your Bitcoin instead. You can make the same case for network effects with gold, which becomes useless unless somebody finds value in it and trades some kind of different assets or goods and barters or exchanges. So even with Bitcoin, I, I guess it's important to make sure that it has real life value and it's not just speculation. 
Mm-hmm. And I appreciate people who do this, this kind of grassroots movement. I know a guy from New Jersey and he walks from store to store and tries to convince people to accept Bitcoin and Litecoin payments. And that's really good for small adoption, for raising awareness, for making people understand how it works. I guess this also only works in environments where you have a proper legislation regarding taxes because shop owners will just ask, okay, so how do I actually declare this to the IRS? How how am I going to avoid fines from the tax man when Mm. he comes around? Yeah, I have conflicting views as far as having uh, retail businesses accept Bitcoin. I mean... Payment methods are something businesses like to be able to support when they can if, they're, if their customers are wanting them to. But I don't know how much, like, you know, I just I think I just shared with you recently how the, the restaurant where I have a Bitcoin meetup here uh, recently started accepting Bitcoin. Well, we talk, he asked me for months about how to do it, and I, I, I told him how he could do it. But what he, added, what he ended up doing was just using a payment processor because... He didn't, he's not big enough to have to like to have uh, an accounting firm that knows how to properly account for the Bitcoin in the ways that the Romanian government would be satisfied with, with the invoicing standards and all this shit. He just wanted to be able to give his customers the convenience. He didn't want to have to actually learn about Bitcoin and care about it and, and have overhead to be able to support it. So he just... Once there was a payment processor that would handle it for him, and he could end up just invoicing customers and and have his accounting stay in Romanian Ron, then he did it. You know, um, I don't know how much it helps adoption other than just that you've educated a business about it and given the random Bitcoiner that comes to town a way to spend his Bitcoin instead of cash. Um, you know, we had this kind of theme in the early years that I came around where everybody was trying to get every business to adopt it. This is how BitPay kind of got off the ground. It was trying to get businesses to adopt Bitcoin. And um, it was a big deal back then. We thought it was the coolest shit whenever somebody would post on Reddit that they're like a local pizza place is accepting Bitcoin now. But these days, it doesn't. I don't think it really matters. I don't think it has a negative or a positive effect outside of just educating one more person about Bitcoin. So let's end with a prediction. How do you see Bitcoin as a network growing in the next 10 years? 10 years. Wow, man. It's only been 10 years. That's asking a lot. Um, I think Bitcoin years are kind of like dog years or something. It's like every year feels like four to seven years have passed for some reason. Uh, so it's, you're asking me, kind of asking me to predict like 50 years or you know, a lot of years. Um, I think that in the next 10 years, we'll definitely start to see some of the disruptive effects of Bitcoin on the economy. Um, I think probably maybe even within the next five years. Uh, things like, you know, seriously devaluing the, the storage of value uh, aspect of gold or stocks or, you know, I think we'll start to see some major disruption, much more government involvement in Bitcoin, whether that be regulatory or, or uh, antagonistic or maybe even owning and mining, who knows. I, I think that in the next 10 years, we'll definitely start to see the, the disruptive effects of Bitcoin. That would be my prediction. That's very general, but also interesting to think about it. Well, we haven't seen it yet, have we? I mean, as far as I know. 
Yeah, right. So, and lightning is still a young technology and people are still agnostic and you have you still have world renowned economists who won the Nobel Prize but say that Bitcoin is a Ponzi. Mm-hmm. But all money is a Ponzi. I think Bitcoin is a Ponzi too, but it's not the Ponzi in the traditional sense. It's yeah, it's uh, but network network effect is the same. That's what a Ponzi is. It's the more money come in, the more that that can be afford to pay it out on a limited scale. Um, but in the end, if you if everybody tries to pull out, well, everybody's going to wreck themselves. So you need holders, and that's what Bitcoin. You know, there is there there are Ponzi qualities to it. But the, the thing that makes different Bitcoin different than a Ponzi is that there isn't one person at the top ripping everybody off. It's everybody else. It's a consensus Ponzi, you know? But the all money is. Yeah, and unlike fiat money, where you actually have a person at the top or a group of few elites who also enable... What's the name of that effect? Wait, I read about it in an article on Mies, M-I-S-E-S. It's about how money, when it's printed, first gets to banks, and by the time it gets to actual people through salaries, it loses value. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, governments print money, and what their job is is to print this money and to create the most productivity with that money in the fastest amount of time possible before it starts having negative effects on the economy. And that's basically how inflationary money works, I think. You know, they're just saying, okay, we need to, we need to spark the economy and we need to keep the economy kicking and, and they, need to st- they need the economy to stay ahead of the money printing. And as long as they can keep this game up, things are okay. But every once in a while, the, the house has to come in and, and kind of uh, regulate everything and, and make every, achieve another equilibrium. And a lot of people get wrecked in this pain and a few people pay the price for many but in the end inflation it's not all bad it's just it's just a concept of that this theory of money means that they try to stimulate economies by by choosing how the value where the value is put in the beginning and hope the economy grows into that value whereas deflationary I mean we don't really know how a deflationary economy will function maybe it won't be as good as an inflationary one i don't know it is a little bit scary to think of, you know, the cost of everything going up and over time and the value of your money going up over time and people being scared to spend their Bitcoin instead of, so it's a little bit inverse to what we have now. Um, maybe what happens is we end up having both. We end up having a hybrid where there's, there's an inflationary dominant money like USD and Bitcoin and they coexist forever. Who knows? Yeah, and just for the record, it's called the, Cantillon effect, C-A-N-T-I-L-L-O-N. This is for deflationary money or... No, 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 for the idea that when money gets printed, it first gets to the elites and it's them who actually benefit from more money. And by the Mm -hmm. time it gets to the employees or people who are at the bottom of the pyramid... The inflation has mm-hmm. kicked in and the money itself has lost value. And when the bankers yeah. or whatever get the fresh, freshly printed money, they buy assets which are deflationary and actually gain, go up in price over time. I wanted to say gain value, but value is different from price. No, I understand. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, it makes sense, and this is what we see. We see the the rich getting richer and the powerful getting more power. And as long as they keep, you know, taking things that are are limited in quantity, like real estate and commodities, and then they will continue that as, for as long as people let them. But I think in the end, everything has to pay the piper in the end. Even even people at the top of an inflationary system, it might just be that you need you need a Bitcoin to come around every thousand years to fix it. And that's a very positive thought. <laughs> so I guess it's <laughs> to end this. I had no idea after I called the ending and I asked what was supposed to be the last question when we got in and spoke more about economics, which I'm glad we did. I I had no idea how to end it, but it, it's a good thought to have that. Every thousand years, you have something like Bitcoin, which comes in and saves all the mess that has been created. So thank you, John. It, yeah, I mean, I, I, hey, I'm not an economist, and, and I'm just kind of halfway talking out my ass here, but I, I do like to think about it. As I did like talking about this stuff, even if I'm not just, just going to disclaim I'm not an expert, and I'm just somebody that thinks about a lot of stuff, and hopefully it's It's always interesting to talk to you because you have all these insights. And I'm not sure how much of what you said in this podcast was new and how much was actually repeated from other interviews that you do on a regular basis. But I'm happy that we have done this. I'm happy too, man. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. And I hope this is going to be a hit. <laughs> me too. I mean, you know, it's pointless unless people listen to this. It's just wasted time, which maybe helps us learn something more from each other. But the information is made to be distributed and used in educational purposes. Yeah, yeah. The best information travels the most. So um, we'll see. Oh, we'll see. So thank you again. No problem, man.